This is your hyperbole-free coronavirus update for April 15th. As I read this to you at 1.38 p.m. Pacific time, there are 640,185 confirmed coronavirus cases in the United States with 28,306 deaths. The American epicenter of the disease remains in New York in New Jersey. New York reported 752 deaths, while New Jersey reported 351. Massachusetts crossed the 1,000 death mark, as Michigan is likely to cross the 2,000 death mark within the next two days. California Governor Gavin Newsom yesterday announced the guidelines by which he would consider reopening parts of the state. With the caveat that this is not a light switch, but more of a dimmer where more opening would happen in places that better adhered to these principles. Here are the principles. The ability to monitor and protect our communities through testing, contact tracing, isolating and supporting those who are positive or exposed. The ability to prevent infection in people who are at risk for more severe COVID-19. The ability of the hospital and health systems to handle surges and the ability to develop therapeutics to meet the demand. Furthermore, the ability for businesses, schools and childcare facilities to support physical distancing. And finally, the ability to determine when to reinstitute certain measures such as the stay at home orders if necessary. That's your hyperbole free coronavirus update. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for April 15th, 2020. You know, in, in, in another timeline, this is around tax time. The Masters are done. March Madness is done. We're, we're well into the spring and beginning of summer. The orange blossoms, uh, orange blossoms, the cherry blossoms have popped. I guess the orange blossoms, too. I don't even know if those are a thing. But no, we live in Plague World, and so I bring you the best possible political podcast that I can. And in rounding up some of our all-stars, I had to bring on Dave Leventhal. It's been a while since we've talked about the money. We talk about the money again. We talk all about Bloomberg. We talk about uh, the, the final autopsy of who spent what and why money mattered where it did and where it didn't. We also talk about uh, looking out into the future, specifically whether or not there are some fundraising machinations, specifically with Kamala Harris, that could portend her being on the Biden ticket. But first, we talk about the shoring up of support. Indeed, the general election has begun, and the way that we know it is we have seen the ants go marching one by one into the camp of Joe Biden. Folks, 
If you're a hockey fan, then you might have already tossed your chapeau because it was a hat trick this week. We began on Monday. So today I am asking all Americans, I'm asking every Democrat, I'm asking every Independent, I'm asking a lot of Republicans to come together in this campaign to support your candidacy, which I endorse. That is indeed the presumptive nominee, Joe Biden, reacting as if he got punched in the gut by Bernie's endorsement. That was live. That was on a live video chat. So Bernie pitching in for the cause. But he was only the opening act. Who could follow the last man standing? And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. Ah, yes, the oft-discussed hidden hand of this Democratic primary. Former President Barack Obama giving the nod to his ex-vice president for the job that he once held. Now, would have been nice if he would have given it to him in 2016, but better late than never if you're Joe Biden. But just when you thought that this was a two-man act, clear the way, boys. Wednesday brings yet another endorsement. And this time, there's background music. And that's why I'm proud to endorse Joe Biden as President of the United States. If you thought that Elizabeth Warren wouldn't be endorsing anybody, well, then you'd be calling her a liar. Yeah, she's here. We're a long way from blood and teeth if she's going to run a treacly Joe Biden is the man for America wherein it demonstrates his commitment to the financial security of its citizens in a picture with him and Timothy Geithner. That's a part of this video for the record. But I do have to say that the Democrats get a reputation for being a bit of a circular firing squad that all they ever do is nitpick and purity test each other until the cows come home. And it is the Republicans that can close ranks faster amongst the two. Well, we're not going to be able to say that about this election. Going back to those crazy 72 hours after the South Carolina win, well, we we have somebody that is uh, been celebrated. The centrist Voltron formed. And then Bernie Sanders was drummed out of this race. Whether it was hastened or lengthened, thanks to the bizarre plague world we have found ourselves in, that remains up to debate. But now there is no... Big progressive holdout. There is no protest that Joe Biden needs to make Medicare for all one of his main planks. There is no Green New Deal that will be foisted upon the former senator from Delaware. No. This is a coalescing. This is a House United. This is going to be the full force of a united Democratic plank, at least from the political side. Now, is Joe Biden going to inherit that enthusiasm? Is he going to inherit that 
youth vote? Is he going to inherit the Latino vote? Well, that remains to be seen. Everything that was represented by the three people you just heard. And again, Bernie, youth and Latino vote. Elizabeth Warren, uh, uh, work or uh, 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 upper class whites with a college degree. Barack Obama, everything I just said, plus the black vote, which Joe Biden has done fairly well with. Will they be enthusiastic about Joe Biden? All of those demographics have a reason to not like Donald Trump, and they, they have demonstrated that vote in the past. However, we're going to find out exactly how much party unity means. Boy, howdy, was there a lot talked about what damage was done by perceived party disloyalty by Hillary Clinton. That was just something that has been said so many times, it is now accepted as fact. Bernie Sanders killed Hillary Clinton's chances to be president because he stayed in too long, he was too aggressive, beep, bop, boop, deep, dop, dorp. Well, if Joe Biden cannot beat Donald Trump in November, there is one excuse that you can take off the table entirely. He had... His party's support. Now we'll see whether or not he can carry the ball over the goal line. All right, we do have some breaking news here. This is circulating as I record this episode that, indeed, while we have a general election of Biden versus Trump, that we might have a bit of a uh, an interesting third-party choice, and that is Justin Amash of the Libertarian Party. He is now seriously considering running and so i bring on one of two people in my life who mentions the name justin amash on a regular <laughs> basis that is of course the host of the political orphanage andrew heaton andrew welcome back to the show thank you it is delightful to be back uh okay uh, and and might i add i am one of I, i'm probably the only person you're friends with that is followed by justin amash on twitter oh okay so maybe an influencer an amash I, influencer. I, I know i know for a fact he finds me funny because i have met him before and he's told me as much <laughs> okay well he uh, i guess still is a house of representative a member of the house of representatives he yeah. uh voted uh to impeach the president uh, on the uh, uh, Ukrainian, among the with, with the Ukrainian push, he is not running again. Uh, he is an out and out anti-Trump uh, voice, and now he could pretty much stroll into the Libertarian nomination. Uh, yeah. Would that be safe to say? I think that that is a, a conclusive yes. I, I think if if he came in, he would come in on a white shining horse, brandishing a sword of freedom, and everybody would be thrilled with him. There, there'd be uh, one or two curmudgeons who. Uh, would think that he's a socialist because he's not the exact level of anarcho-capitalist they are, but for the most part, I think he'd carry it handedly. All right, so before we get into how this factors into the general, if at all, let's look at his relationship to the Libertarian Party because uh, I think this would be the freshest face amongst the ex-Republican parade right. that normally comes in and takes a Libertarian nomination. Normally they're either well out of the Republican Party and well out of re relevance or 
maybe a, a fringe Republicans to begin with. Uh, uh, describe Justin Amash compared to, let's say, the Gary Johnson and Bob Bars of the past. So Bob Barr's a little bit before me. I don't know a whole lot about Bob Barr, but I but I know Gary, and I and I'm much more familiar with Gary's campaign. Uh, Gary Gary ran twice as the head of the Libertarian Party, as the, the Libertarian nominee for president, and uh, uh, former governor of uh, New Mexico. Um, Gary is, in my estimation, basically a a '90s Republican, like yeah. a sane '90s Republican, in that uh, he's for fiscal restraint and uh, uh, you know, but but also is not. Let me let me rephrase it. He does not have a hardcore Plutonic libertarian uh, outlook. Um, so he he was um, you know very very uh, vocal about foreign intervention and about legalizing marijuana and that kind of thing. But he he's not the kind of guy that's going to quote Hayek. Or yeah. von Mises or something, um, and so uh, he he's running in in what is a frequent libertarian or was running in what was a frequent libertarian mold of kind of getting ex GOP members like him and Bill Weld and, and you mentioned Barr um, to to kind of swoop in and provide credibility to the Libertarian Party by by running after they'd already been a Republican. Amash um, is different in that um, no one is in doubt of Amash's libertarian veracity. So like with with um, Johnson, Johnson, you know, took the the first uh, the first time he ran pretty handedly. The second time um, it it was a little bit more contested, but there there was a tension within the libertarian party of are, are we just bringing this guy in and, and letting him um, I, I'm saying I wasn't a part of this, but the, the, the libertarians were saying, are we letting this guy uh, come in to just kind of give us, um, you know, a respectable veneer by virtue of the fact that he's a governor, but but is he actually libertarian? Are, are we are we bringing in an outsider um, to sort of infuse us with a title, uh, or or are we actually getting a real libertarian? There was a significant debate as to whether he was a real libertarian or not. No one debates whether Justin Amash um, is. Uh, is uh, is means what he says and is libertarian. He he is his own. You know, uh, libertarians tend to get into these hyper abstract absolutist. How many private roads could we build on the head of a pen? Yeah. And I you I we we must stop the car and talk. And I we cannot move on with our lives until I correct you on your interpretation of on me. So they tend to do that. No one debates that he's whatever strain of libertarian he is. He he's he's yeah. been the fidelity that he's had to his limited government constitutional Hayekian outlook has has been uh, consistent. In my mind, and and you you very very accurately painted a lot of the pedantic nature of the inter libertarian kind of uh, uh, conversation, but when you pull it out to a ten thousand foot view for a layman. The libertarian mindset tends to be the gun nuts, the pot smokers, and the book nerds. He seems yeah. to be the book nerd of the yeah. book nerd tribe. Yes, uh, very uh, much so. This is, he, you know, the, the, the you know, uh, which can converse more with the outer world, I feel like. They're, they're, they're less the, like, super hardcore, uh, uh, you know, even at the detriment of the public good, I will hold my, my liberty. Yes. Uh, the, 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 I, I got to say that the, the, the neckbeard Sharia libertarians are of no use <laughs> to anyone in the libertarian movement at all. A hundred percent. Just talk to other libertarians. If you fall into that camp, you are not helping anyone. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think, no, Amash, um, Amash has a, uh, he, he has that kind of uh, Jesuitical uh, impulse to him. Like uh, he, um, 
like I, I think kind of having been waist deep with libertarians for several years now, there there is a like a a very strong, indelible, absolutist kind of um, almost scriptural uh, kind of personality trait of. Uh, it's not so much that this is a functional principle that works. This is a like a, a cosmic edict that we, yeah. we ha absolutely have to follow. He has that. So he's definitely in that camp. Like he's not like I, I'd say like to get really in the weeds here. Sure. Lincoln, Cha Lincoln Chafee yeah. struck me more as like a, a pragmatic guy who was like, you know, I think I align with this. This seems to work pretty well. Uh, Amash is definitely more of that. This is a red line. We shall not cross it, you know, kind of thinker. That said, though, uh, I think he's certainly a lot more palatable than the Sharia neckbeard types. Sure. Uh, and so he's he's got that that Jesuit impulse, but he'd be able to talk. He also like you know, um, I mean, he he did vote to impeach the president. He did leave the GOP. Um, he's he's got um, I think more credibility with Democrats right now um, than say Gary Johnson did going in. Okay, put a pin in that for a second because I want to end on on that particular idea. Uh, one more question about Amash the candidate and reference to the Libertarian Party. If I were in the Libertarian Party, I'd be very excited to just put him on television. He knows how to do the Sunday circuit. Yeah. He knows how to talk to reporters. He comes off well. He's not going to be zoned out and have uh, what is Aleppo moment. Right. He's going to do his homework. He is going to make the, Liber the Libertarian Party less crazy. Do you yes. think that that is, even if this is, uh, you know, like most third party candidacies, uh, ultimately uh, fruitless, I think it would be helpful for the Libertarian Party to just have a fresh faced young man to just get, leave a nice impression on, on the TV. A hundred percent. There is a significant portion of the Libertarian Party in terms of desire or in terms of practical impl implementation, which views the, the presidential election as a kind of ceremony where uh, a kind of crazy looking firebrand will be trotted out to say, you know, the, we should we should, you know, the United States should be destroyed and the county government should be that like that tends to, like that that happens. But it doesn't. It doesn't tend to fire people up outside of the people already there. You were very much correct in thinking that um, <clears throat> Ju Justin Amash would be a respectable mouthpiece for yeah. the Libertarian Party and would would not come off as. I like Gary Johnson and uh, like I, like I'm I, I I voted for Gary Johnson. Um, that said, though, Gary comes off as loopy. Like he absolutely comes off as loopy. Yeah. And uh, and um, I don't think Justin Amash would do that. Um, my bigger concern would not be that that Justin Amash would be lending credibility because it, it basically Amash is the, the the libertarian dream for the Libertarian Party in that he is both um, he is both a legitimate libertarian in whatever that means. Yeah. And he is a respectable uh, uh, respectable statesman. Um, so like like that does not tend to be. Um, those don't tend to be united quite as well. There tends to be a balance between the two. My concern for Amash would be this. Let's say um, unquestionably the data ends up being that he tosses the election to Trump. Ah, here we that go. This be... is where this is where I want to end. Right. So traditionally, if we look at the, the the map the way that we have in the past, a strong libertarian candidate would be bad for the Republican nominee because it would take traditional conservatives, hardline conservatives that maybe believe that the Republican Party has moderated too far to the center, and that would hurt. So Ross Perot being the the uh, uh, you know biggest version of that, the Green Party on the other side for the Democrats right. that you would take purity tested yeah. Demo uh, liberals and they would vote green. However, 
We're in this very odd situation now where Justin Amash is famous for storming out of the GOP. He has built his credibility with never Trumpers. So let's say that there are these suburban college educated Republicans that are so disgusted with Donald Trump, but yet cannot bring themselves to uh, vote for Joe Biden and now find a home with Justin Amash. Is he a liability for Joe Biden's campaign? Uh, I mean, that's going to be the really big concern, right? And I, I hope that Amash is crunching the numbers and looking at that. I don't think so. Um, uh, so I met with Nick Sarwark when I was up, up in New Hampshire with you. Yeah. Uh, 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 you were getting arrested or something at the time. I was dutifully <laughs> meeting with people in New sure. Hampshire. Uh, when I when I met with Nick uh, and talked to him, according to Nick, who's the head of the Libertarian Party, um, the 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 LP is pretty much um, equal parts, former Republicans, former Democrats, and never been either. Um, my experience anecdotally has been that there's far more disgusted former Republicans than there are former Democrats in the Libertarian Party. Uh, and that I, I also think that given that Justin Amash is, while being very libertarian um, and having common ground with, um, say, like uh, a lot of Bernie supporters, and that he would, you know, from, from Amash's perspective or theirs, you could look at Biden and Trump and go, these are both corporatist major people. That being said, though, uh, Justin Amash speaks in terms of constitution. The, the words, he, he speaks Republican. He doesn't speak Democrat. He's not saying social justice. He's not saying sure. um, privilege, patriarchy. He's saying words like constitution, restraint, uh, you know, uh, patriotism, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I would be very, very surprised if he drew more Democrats than Republicans. So I think to, to your point, the, the, the bigger issue would be might he filch some of the disgusted Republicans? That's that's it's, the key. Instead of sending yes. them over to to uh, to Biden, yes, but it really only matters in terms of the swing states. So like like he, he's in Michigan, right? Trump nearly took Michigan last time. I think he took Michigan by like forty yeah. seven hundred votes fingernail. or something. I mean, yeah. it was very low. Um, I like in Michigan. I think Trump is. Uh, I I think uh, uh, that that uh, Amash is more likely to kick it to Biden than he is to Trump. Because uh, I think Biden's going to be able to rely on all those union guys. Um, and so, like, I, I think if, if you're looking to divide that pie into, into thirds, I think that it is more likely he will take voters from Trump than it is he will take potential voters from Biden. Um, so I don't think so. I mean, my, my take for anybody listening, if Amash runs, I would be thrilled. I would probably vote for Amash, but I wouldn't do it if I were in a swing state. If I were in a swing state, vote for Biden. But, yeah. uh, but you know, the, the rest of the time, though, I think he's a fantastic third option. Man, you better hope you're right, because those knives are going to be real sharp in those swing states if if yeah. Justin Amash is looked at as somebody or is polled as somebody that is taking away a potential, a potential uh, a Biden voting resource. Yeah, well, OK, yes, that is true. And I am. I am. I, I do not believe I have been ambiguous at all in my critiques of Donald Trump. Sure. I am not for Donald Trump. Between him and Biden, hands down Biden, that is not a difficult conversation for me. Uh, that said, though, I do not like this mindset that we get into where people like the idea of third parties. They like the idea of ranked choice voting about two years after the election. But as we get as we approach the election, all the you know, the, just tons of people are like, you know, in theory, I like what you're having to say. And I like the idea of having actual competitive democracy. But at the end of the day, there's two options and you need to knuckle down and get into it. And, and it's a mindset of, uh, 
hey, placate the two big groups and and we'll let you play around the fringes. We 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 want you to exist, but we don't want you to ever actually affect anything. And and I, I'm looking at that going, I, I I don't think the two major parties are ever going to voluntarily concede power because they think it's cute. Yeah. I think that you 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 don't alter the system by knuckling down when push actually comes to shove. So I like the idea that you know the libertarians should only field bad candidates or they should like <laughs> proffer proffer a uh, a uh, a good candidate but like be very clear not to vote for him. Like like it's this kind of cute ceremonial thing. I I think that's a a poor way to approach democracy. It's just impossible because either you field a a virile candidate that is going to hurt one of the two major parties' uh, chances at victory, or perceived as hurting one of the two major parties' chances at victory, or you you know uh, uh, nominate a Santa Claus looking dude with the, the butt cut out of his pants. Uh, <laughs> you know that everybody well, like, can laugh at. Like like I I, I throw it like um I. Why why don't we do the ranked choice voting thing? Like like we're all like like there were all these wonderful articles coming out of Vox and the New Yorker and the New York Times that, that were all about like you know uh, you know really we should have ranked choice yes we should have ranked choice voting and and like the 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 fear that people are experiencing that Amash might overturn the apple cart is a great example of why uh, everybody in the country who's not a part of these two old moldering nasty parties would love to be able to participate more and we'll shut up and we'll vote in your dumb system if you let us have our own voice first in case you were wondering which libertarian tribe andrew heaton hails from amongst the gun nuts the book nerds and the potheads <laughs> he's the one that cites the ranked choice voting article he read in the new yorker so uh I, I would I would like to clarify. I am merely an independent Justin. Oh, I, sure. I, I represent only myself. Everyone's got a hometown. And speaking <laughs> speaking of that, we actually we are going to have you back on sometime soon, uh, uh, where I I only want to talk about how Joe Exotic got 19 percent right. of the vote yeah. in the Oklahoma Libertarian primary. Yep. We're, we're going to get way deep into Oklahoma state politics uh -huh. at a great. future date. But until then, please go ahead and listen to The Political Orphanage, of course, hosted by the great Andrew Heaton and Alienating the Audience, his science fiction podcast, uh, at Mighty Heaton on Twitter, right? That's right. Uh, you nailed it. Thank you, Justin. A pleasure. Yeah, and streaming on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Mighty Heaton. Thank you so much, mm -hmm. brother, for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you. That was fun. Quick pause to remind everybody that this show is produced entirely with your help at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The $3 level gets you two bonus episodes per week. Per week, folks. Monday. Thursday. Bonus episodes for you directly into your podcatcher. You don't need to download them anywhere. You don't need to go to an app. You just put them in the same podcatcher that you get this podcast right now. That's the beauty of the Patreon custom RSS feed. It's also where you need to go if you want to win any of our free swag giveaways. These are actual artifacts from the primary campaign that we are giving away now. We're giving them away in the order that the candidates dropped out this week. We are announcing the winners of the Elizabeth Warren swag giveaway. Benjamin. If your name is Benjamin, go check that post and uh, see if it's you because uh, you're going to need to email me your address so I can uh, so I can get this to you. Uh, and Richard, go double check right there on TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I also commented on your comments so you can tell which one of them you are.
But now, we have to move forward. Because our next Campaign Undertaker giveaway is for the Aloha Gang. Yes, Tulsi Gabbard. We only have one bit of Tulsi Gabbard swag. It's a pamphlet, but it's going out to somebody. If you want to win it, go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, write gong, and uh, you will be able to uh, be a part of it. Now, I I do have to mention this. Legally, because Patreon yelled at me when I was posting this last time, you do not need to be a patron to win this stuff. Not at all. You can you can just be a guy who listens to the show. You may or may not have to set up a Patreon account, but that is free. So this is a free contest open to everybody. And if, for whatever reason, it's happened once already, I happen to select somebody internationally, I will suck it up and spend the postage so you guys can get uh, the, the swag that you have won. Again, takepoliticsseriously.com. Write gong, G-O-N-G, on the, uh, on, on the post that goes out today, April 15th. Politics. Oh, it's been too long. Too long since we've dived into the dollars and cents. The, the real, when, when, when you cut a campaign, it doesn't bleed red or blue. No, no, no. It is green, friends. To understand how power works, you got to understand how the money flows, and nobody understands that better in Washington, D.C. than Dave Leventhal from the Center of Public Integrity. He joins us uh, again, our money man. Dave, welcome back to the show. It is so good to be with you under these most bizarre circumstances as they are, Justin. (laughs) Indeed. But one thing doesn't stop. And that is uh, uh, the flow of money. And although it is uh, halted to a bit of a trickle in terms of our economy, certainly we are now getting more and more information of how it was moving at the beginning of the year in terms of the political world. All the Q1 fundraising stories are told. Uh, uh, What did we learn? What, What are the headlines from Q1 as the primaries we now know rounded to a close and we begin the general? The biggest headline is Donald Trump and Donald Trump, who is going to officially report his numbers uh, late on the 15th. He already came out with a preview of that, and, and the preview is, is massive in terms of dollars and cents. The Trump campaign, in conjunction with the Republican National Committee and also in conjunction with these joint committees that they have together, they're going to report a combined 240 plus million dollars in the bank going into April. That is just crazy money. And it's going to give them enough resources and enough money, particularly in a time where they're not going to be traveling all around uh, because of the coronavirus situation, not having big campaign events. That's that's some serious scratch, Justin, going into the general election if and when we get to the point where we get to do face-to-face ground on campaigning again, uh, which we don't know when that's going to be, of course. Okay, let, let's single in on that. In general, how much is the traveling circus of a campaign's budget? Like just airfare, hotel for the entire crew, a payment for venues, security. Like, is there a percentage that you can put on just an average uh, a campaign's budget for just those expenditures? 
different campaigns run themselves in different ways, and some are more shoestringy than others. And definitely there's a massive difference between primary campaigns and general election campaigns. Well, for all intents and purposes, we're in the general election phase right now, even yeah. if Joe Biden officially does not become the Democratic nominee. But that being said, we're, we're talking under any circumstance for a general election phase of the campaign, millions upon millions and millions of dollars every month for the types of activities that you just described. Now, Donald Trump might be doing it to a greater degree than Joe Biden because Donald Trump has many more resources at this point than Joe Biden, uh, but both are going to be doing it. That's for sure. And this is why money is important, too. If you yeah. have a whole bunch of money, a surplus of money, you get to do it more. You get to send more people more places. You get to have operations uh, that are robust and strong in many more states than you might otherwise. So if you're talking about a Wisconsin or a Pennsylvania or a Florida or a Michigan, you know, one of the many states that are going to be really critical states to one candidate or, or the other uh, ultimately winning it, if you can throw another 100, 200, 500, 1,000 people in that state, open more offices, put up more television ads, send out more mailers and flyers, fly people all around, drive them all around, that that's an advantage, uh, particularly when you could be talking about tens of thousands, if not thousands, or even hundreds of votes that separate the, uh, the candidates in those key critical states that back in 2016 were so darn close. So we're talking about if Donald Trump can't go to the local basketball or hockey arena and do an event for, you know, 15,000 people like he has done in the past, then more likely this means that he can not only put what you would immediately think like television, radio, internet ads up earlier and more broadly, but also this is probably going to be more of a get out the vote spend that, that you can just put more local offices in more places and hire more people to go knock on more doors. That's entirely possible, but I think we, everything is going to be colored by the coronavirus situation. Sure. If yeah. We're still sheltering in place. If, if travel's restricted, if you have some or many States or even most States and not just a couple of weeks from now, but still months from now, that are are really kind of shut down uh, or or things are just not back to normal in, in any material way, you're looking obviously at a very, very different campaign. And in terms of the money that is going to be spent in this campaign, the money is going to be there, especially for Donald Trump. And as a result, the money is going to be spent probably in a, in a demonstrably different way than it would have been if everything was free and clear and Donald yeah. Trump could do his Make America Great Again, rallies in, in you know, any bloody city he wanted to. So what happens? What does that look like? Well, it looks like digital ads like crazy. And, and yeah. we saw this in the primary with certain candidates. Michael Bloomberg definitely was oh, one of them. we're going to get to him. We're, we're going to get to and, him, and I suspect we will. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, that, that's going to, in a way, that, that's kind of a template for what uh, a Trump campaign or a Biden campaign during the general election phase with the coronavirus still looming over everything like a giant dark cloud, what, what it could look like come September, October, November. Now, that may or may not happen, but if it does, we definitely know there are plenty of pathways for that money to go, plenty of rivers for that money to flow down to get to people, to get to their eyeballs and to you know go through their devices and their computers and everything else in order to get out a vote, to motivate them to donate, to participate in some way. 
And, and finally, you know, we, we're going to have a voting system in November that almost certainly is going to look a lot different than the voting system last election in 2016. Now, what's that going to look like? We don't know yet. Is it going to involve vote by mail, absentee ballots, a combination of a whole bunch of things that, that we haven't seen before? all kind of on the board here, and it will differ from state to state since elections are run at the state level. But that, too, could be a venue where a lot of this campaign money is getting spent in novel ways relative to what we've seen in previous elections. All right, let's flip to the Democratic side. Bernie Sanders had been the leader in the clubhouse in terms of fundraising. Obviously, that uh, did not save him from the centrist Voltron forming right before Super Tuesday and powering Joe (laughs) Biden to victory. Uh, uh, now that we've kind of seen all of the the bulk of the primary fundraising, uh, uh, how much did Bernie outraise everybody, and uh, uh, what did it buy him? Well, it, you know, it bought him relevancy uh, a lot longer than if you would have asked the question a year ago. Uh, some people would thought. Uh, Got to remember that when. Bernie Sanders announced for president in in 2019 that he was going to do this again. So many of the headlines were, are you kidding us? Bernie's a thousand years old. He, he didn't win last time. How's he going to win this time? Time to turn the page. You got all these young candidates coming in. So in, in a way, he was counted out before he even had an opportunity to get himself into it. And, and he proved everyone wrong, that he was the last man standing before dropping out and before Joe Biden became the presumptive nominee, you know, that that's fairly remarkable compared to, to again, where we were at uh, about a year ago. And he was quite a survivor in that regard. So the money that he was able to raise bought him relevancy throughout the whole campaign, a huge messaging army. He had a lot of support. He was able to use that money in very effective ways to keep himself in the game, but it wasn't enough. Uh, and some might argue it never was going to be enough for him to win the nomination because as passionate as Bernie Sanders supporters are, as as much as people were willing to do anything for Bernie Sanders, including open up their wallets, swipe their credit cards, make that $27 donation or many, many $27 donations over the course of the primary, he hit his ceiling and, and he just couldn't get enough support and dig deeply enough into the support of other candidates along the way to propel himself to to win the states he needed to win to be on the winning end of the equation. And that's why Joe Biden is the nominee in part. And that's why Bernie Sanders is on teleconferences and video calls with Joe Biden endorsing him these days. All right. So here's my question, though. How much does money matter or or specifically money matter compared to power? Because Joe Biden was a pitiful fundraiser. Uh, You know, there were certainly rumors on the campaign trail and things said on television about how his campaign was close to dead broke. Uh, Even as early as New Hampshire, he shuffled his leadership. He still uh, couldn't particularly raise money compared to some of the other candidates. And yet he was the 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 default of, of fulcrum for everybody to fold their support to, at least in the centrist lane. So does money matter? So it's not a perfect parallel, but I think there are some lines to be drawn back to the 2008 
Republican primary when just uh, some of the things that you said could be applied very much to John McCain. He was broke. He had people who were who were abandoning him on his staff. He was a whole lot of nowhere at one point, and yet he ended up surviving and was able to win the nomination ultimately in 2008. And, and I think if there's one kind of connective tissue between 2008 and that Republican primary and 2020 and the primary that we saw on the Democratic side now is that the, the fields were pretty big. Uh, the the yeah. Democratic field in 2020 was huge, massive. I mean, we had two dozen candidates at one point, and the Republican field back then was a little bit smaller. But both Joe Biden and John McCain, they were late in their career. They were well-known commodities. They had been in the Senate forever. Everyone knew their record. They had run for president before, and, and they were able to just kind of dodge the, the bombs and the bullets and the landmines along the way that were knocking other candidates out. And Joe Biden, his strategy, as it was, was to always focus on South Carolina, which he knew he was going to win. And by that time, and hey, historians are going to be talking about this race for a long, long time, but South Carolina was his firewall and it proved to work, even though that's a strategy that typically has fairly low odds. If you look at all the different candidates who've run and who've had a firewall somewhere, Rudy Giuliani had a firewall. Firewall in Florida. Well. Yeah. Newt Gingrich had a firewall in South Carolina. Well, that didn't work out for him either. And, and he's still not president of the moon. So, you know, <laughs> you've got a, a real weird kind of situation where typically it doesn't work. But for Joe Biden, it actually did this time. And there's a thousand and one factors that go into a campaign. This is a long way around back to the question of money. But money doesn't mean that you're going to win. If you have the most money, it doesn't mean that it's a guarantee you are going to take whatever race you're running in. And oftentimes it matters where the money is coming from, how you're getting money, and also how you're using money in order to work your strategy to be successful. Michael Bloomberg, who, again, we will get to in a second. No, no this will be, be our segue. This will be our segue. Let, 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 <laughs> well, let's... perfect. I mean, he, he spent more than $100 million in ways that were, were in the end, uh, not, not worth a dime for him because he wasn't successful. He didn't win anything. He didn't win a single state. Uh, he won a territory, and, <laughs> and that's not going to win you the nomination, and it's not going to win you the election. So the return on investment for Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden obviously has proven himself to be a heck of a lot more efficient, I think we can fairly say, than many of the other candidates and how he used that money. And also, too, Joe Biden has something that money can't buy, which is name recognition everywhere and anywhere. Sometimes it's a bad thing. This it ended up being a really good thing for Joe Biden in a place like South Carolina and some of the subsequent states that he won, where what what is what is old and what is familiar and what is trusted and what is true to some people will, will be their default. And if you can just get the message out that, hey, I'm Joe Biden, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm an option for you, that, that proved for many voters to be something that was motivation enough for them to go out and support Joe Biden and motiva motivation enough for them to go vote for Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, like, I, like, like, like you said, we're going to be talking about this one for a while. And I, in my heart of hearts, I don't know if Joe Biden is coalesced around if the if it was not, at least for party leadership, looked at as a binary choice that either we coalesce around Joe right now where Bernie Sanders is our nominee. 
Uh, well, it shows that the party is so very powerful, and people like uh, yeah. you know a representative Jim Clyburn, for example, sure. had a huge amount of influence and power too. And it, it, this wasn't a necessarily a result of Joe Biden being so awesome and amazing. It's that Joe Biden was in a very real way a survivor and made smart choices that allowed him to kind of, I, I guess if you're, you know, want to be a cynic about this, uh, sneak his way into the nomination. And if you like Joe Biden, say, hey, survive a very turbulent, tumultuous campaign where some like everyone was going to lose except one person. And yeah. it just so happened to be Joe Biden who survived to the end, particularly when he was running against uh, Bernie Sanders uh, in the end, who wasn't popular in his own right in many quarters of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, they ultimately just exploited the fact that Bernie was not great at reaching out to communities that he had not had strength with. And and that was, that was I think, a fatal problem for him. But uh, still, it's like, you know, you just need so many things to go right if you're Joe Biden. You need you need Elizabeth Warren to run probably a worse campaign than she could have. You need, uh, uh, you know, a Pete to, to do well, but not quite get over the hump in New Hampshire, really not be able to coalesce much minority support in Nevada and then be a total non-existent factor in South Carolina. Because I think if, if there were other... If there were other escape hatches, they probably would have went with somebody other than Biden. And yet, here we are. I uh, mean, it's not always the number one, two, three, or four seed that that you know gets to the final four or wins the NCAA basketball championship. And not that we have it this year, but no. in, in normal <laughs> Theoretically. years. Theoretically, and the same holds true in politics. And and also too, we forget uh, sometimes that Joe Biden was the the leader in this race for many, many, many months until things got, you know, funky as we thought. So it wasn't like Joe Biden was just some complete wacky dark horse here. On on the contrary, you know, he he wasn't. But, uh, yeah, things got rocky for him, and then they didn't. No. On on the campaign trail, he looked less like a dark horse and more like glue. But uh, (laughs) yet here he is. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into the the thing that I have – gleefully uh, tried to discuss at every possible moment, and that is the most expensive campaign uh, uh, run for the least amount of effort. What can you tell me in terms of how Michael Bloomberg spent his money? Michael Bloomberg spent his money every which way he possibly humanly could spend money in the period of 101 days that (laughs) he was running for president of the United States. And it was it, it was the goofiest, most comical, strangest, amazing, eye-opening 101 days of that. And, and, and that's what happens when you have a billionaire who is not just a billionaire, but a multi-multi-multi-multi-billionaire, one of the richest men in the world. Yeah. And, and he's, got, he's got nothing to lose. Uh, he, he is doing this for reasons – if you take him at face value for the good of this country to beat Donald Trump, uh, many people have argued that that this is out of pure vanity. Uh, it was a, a massive grand experiment in a way that we have never seen in U.S. politics because nobody has attempted, even gotten close to attempting what Michael Bloomberg did with his money. So there's no template for it. Ross Perot back in 1992, not a template for it. Steve Forbes back in 2000, not a template for it. Nobody has has ever had this uh, pool, vast quantity of resource to bring to bear. Michael Bloomberg did. 
and he spent it on staff. He spent it on digital ads in, in an unprecedented way for any campaign in world history, not just U.S. history, anywhere. Uh, and and, and he, he spent it in, in ways that have defied logic for the context of a campaign, such as not just paying tons and tons of staff, but paying them unbelievably well, like people making six figures to do pretty mundane jobs on a campaign. I mean, unheard of salaries. So yeah, pretty much he just wanted to build the biggest, baddest, craziest, most multi-pronged political machine. And it all just kind of kind of fell apart. Uh, the, the machine didn't work and the machine didn't hold together uh, because the machine, just the design of it was ill-conceived from the beginning and had a candidate uh, at its head who wasn't able to compel Democrats uh, in a way that would allow him to, again, not just win the nomination and the presidency, but not even to win any state. Michael Bloomberg just didn't stick. People didn't trust him. People didn't want him to be the candidate, particularly when he was up on stage and put up against some of the other options that the Democrats had. Might have been different if it was like Michael Bloomberg versus Bernie Sanders or Michael Bloomberg yes. versus Joe Biden. But that wasn't the case. Well, and really his candidate his candidacy was there as a a break class uh, uh, you know a break glass in case Joe Biden just evaporated into dust and blew off into the sunset. And so now you needed another well capitalized centrist. To, to take the reins. Now, I, I say all this because he did indeed spend $100 million in 101 days, and apparently none of that was on a debate coach. But Hawkfish, the company that ran all of his data analytics, is right. now looking to run the Biden campaign. Uh, is, is that, uh, number one, just beyond whether or not this is a good idea, uh, is this a modern campaign expenditure for a you know a 2020 candidate in the in the general to bring on a big data company or is that normally something that the party will provide for a campaign and so this is Dave Rigger, standard practice now to to have a massive sophisticated data operation for a presidential campaign, and uh, it, it's been varied what each candidate has done over the past decade, but you really saw it with Obama in 2012, the upping of the game with his own campaign and to the, the Democratic Party in, in a way that allowed them to leapfrog Republicans. Now, the Republicans really began to catch up in 2016 and, and have quite an enviable digital operation here in 2020, we're getting to the point where both sides in, in somewhat different ways, but, but bottom line, I mean, they're, they're really, really good at doing the digital game and, and are investing exponentially more money and resources into it than we saw four years ago, eight years ago, anything at all. So yes, for Joe Biden, he's going to be looking to strengthen his digital game as much as he possibly can. And whether it's going to be some company that Michael Bloomberg runs or a combination of others, I, I don't think we know the full story there quite yet. And also, too, again, because of the coronavirus situation, you may be looking at uh, campaigns or party committees trying to bring on new and you know, innovative companies that are, are going to allow candidates to connect with people 
in ways that we never would have even conceived of. I, I, you know, personally, I'm just curious as to how how Zoom is going to factor into all of this. Are we going to see campaign ads every time you you try to log in to have a Friday night happy hour with your friends? Uh, are there going to be different platforms that get used that are now suddenly very much uh, popular right now that you know a couple months ago weren't weren't even really in the conversation? So. Just a couple of examples of many, many things that could potentially be different, could possibly be different. And you've got to believe that both the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign are going to be looking at every single option that they have, overturning every stone that can be overturned in a bid for trying to reach people and connect with people in a way that's going to be in service to their success as a presidential candidate. Yeah, that is a big question, because if this campaign is literally going to be run on Twitter, then... There's obviously one candidate that is already there and another candidate that's going to have to up their game. Uh, let's actually turn to the general. Actually, no, no, no. I have one more Bloomberg question. How much money did sure. you spend on this campaign? Because I've heard a, a hundred million. I've heard near a, a billion. Like, like how, how much did he spend on this campaign? So we'll, we'll get a new round of kind of final financial figures coming up uh, just this week. And it, it's north of a half a billion dollars, I can tell you that definitively. And that that goes so far beyond what all the other candidates put together spent. Uh, Tom Steyer is kind of the weird asterisk uh, there that, that you might want to carve out. But yeah, that's uh, that's money that we've never seen in a primary before, even for a full primary. And remember, Michael Bloomberg entered the race in November. <laughs> that, that, that 101 days started around Thanksgiving. So, we're, oh, you know, we're all sitting down God. to have turkey and Michael Bloomberg is entering the presidential race. So that was extremely late. Uh, and, and, and it was a break glass type of situation. I don't think that there's any question to it. Had Michael Bloomberg entered the race, say, the first time he thought about entering the race, when he decided against entering the race before he changed his mind in November and did enter the race, we, we might be having a very different conversation than I trust that we would be, uh, for better or for worse, for Michael Bloomberg. But that wasn't the case. And yeah, as a result, it was just, all right, I'm going to spend as much money as I possibly can in 101 days and kind of see where the chips fall and see if Bernie bombs out and Biden flames out and, and the whole deal here. And it, it just was not uh, not to be for Michael Bloomberg. Not to be. Oh, well, poor Michael Bloomberg. And of course, didn't hurt his bottom line. Don't cry for Michael Bloomberg. He is still a multi, 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 multi billionaire who's going to be just fine. The way the way it was explained to me is if you look at Michael Bloomberg's net worth and you look at what he lives on each year just by interest of his fortune, that if he spent $2 billion running for president, which would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, a record, uh, he it would basically be the equivalent of somebody buying a new car. Like, you know, it would, it would, it would be, look, he would, it would, it would certainly stick out on the taxes the next year, but it's not anything that's going to break the bank. Nope. I mean, if you if you have, I'm just doing math in my head here, Justin. But if you have uh, ten thousand dollars to your name, uh, it, this would be like making an expenditure to pay your water bill this month. Yeah. You're, you're, it's not going to be great. Uh, you'd like to have that money back, but it's not going to hurt you. And in the scheme of things, you're you're not going to miss it that much. And arguably, uh, arguably, you'd get more out of the showers from that water bill than Michael Bloomberg <laughs> did by securing the favor of American Samoa. 
uh, all right, let's let's look forward here. Uh, there is campaign finance news that might portend to where we're going to end up in terms of the Democratic ticket, and that is a report that Kamala Harris has secured what is described as a fundraising agreement with the DNC that is usually only reserved for running mates. Describe what this relationship is and whether or not this is being overblown as a signal that she could be Biden's VP. It's something called a joint fundraising committee, and it's not unprecedented for Senate candidates or even House candidates to partner in this sort of way with one of the party committees. So on the Democratic side, we have, of course, the Democratic National Committee. We also have the uh, the House and the Senate versions of the DNC that exist, uh, like the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, to promote Democratic Senate candidates. Uh, and they will partner through these sort of committees, through these committees to sort of do joint fundraisers and, and joint fundraising efforts, and, and they share the wealth. Okay, they share in the money that they raise, and they also have the ability to uh, to raise more money from individuals. So instead of somebody just cutting a check for the maximum of twenty eight hundred dollars to a single candidate for a single race, they can cut a much bigger check at a fundraiser that that will be spread among all the people who are part of this committee. Now that's a lot of detail. What does this mean in practicality and reality? Well, yeah, you know, there's a reason why people are, are kind of opening their eyes a little bit and scratching their chins saying, hmm, wonder if this is Kamala just trying to get herself uh, in a good position and trying to get herself uh, kind of set on the runway to be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. I wouldn't read too much into it. I think that any candidate could do this. Any candidate might choose to do this. Uh, and, and I consider Kamala Harris as somebody who is – you know, she's a senator. She, she's still running for things, even though she just had an election recently. Uh, it's not going to hurt her. It's yeah. definitely going to potentially help Joe Biden. There, there's really nothing to be lost from doing this. And she's going to be going around supporting Joe Biden regardless, uh, as is everyone now, including Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who's endorsed Joe Biden and Barack Obama. So to me, this seems like just one in a series of steps that are, are trying to signal to people that the Democratic Party is a united party, that everyone needs to get behind Joe Biden, that we are all together, kumbaya, let's raise lots of money, <laughs> and let's go beat Donald Trump. That's going to be the message. And Kamala Harris doing this and creating this kind of committee, yeah, if she becomes a vice presidential nominee, well, everyone's going to point us and say, well, look back then, told you so, but... I I don't think Joe Biden has selected his vice presidential nominee yeah. at this point in time. This, this, this is not a, this is not She's a under consideration. Gun. How could yeah. she not be? You know. Yeah. Although probably raising a ton of money for the campaign would be a good uh, line on the resume if you're choosing on who you're going to give the VP nomination, right? And and it's not only the VP nomination, but you know, are we talking about Attorney General Kamala Harris? Are we talking yeah. about? You know, Secretary of State Elizabeth Warren or uh, Treasury Secretary, who knows what, what this is all going to shake out into uh, if Joe Biden was to win the presidency, which is a huge if and but. Uh, but, yeah, you know, the candidates are, are not going to not – candidates, I should say, former Democratic presidential yeah. candidates are not at this point not going to 
do everything that they can uh, to support Joe Biden and, and beat Donald Trump. There's one thing they all can agree on. It is that. And, and they're, they're going to make their efforts accordingly. Final question. We talk a lot about money that can and cannot move from one campaign or one purpose to another. Uh, Kamala Harris did win in 2016. So she is up for re-election for her senatorial seat in California in two years, which is not mm-hmm. you know, the longest time. Certainly this is when you would start thinking about fundraising and campaigning, even if she was solely focused on the Senate. Can the money she raises with this agreement transfer to that, or is it just for Joe Biden? So it depends how she wants to spend it, and it depends how the committee wants to divvy that money up. If Kamala Harris as a Senate candidate has an agreement uh, where some of the money is going to go to her Senate campaign, absolutely. She can use it for her own purposes. If she wants to make contributions or transfer money from committee to, to committee to Joe Biden, that's an option, too. There's lots of different ways for money to flow in federal politics. And we saw this a lot when some of the Senate candidates, including Kamala Harris, came online as presidential candidates. You had some of those Senate candidates who were dipping into their Senate campaign accounts, transferring money over to their presidential campaign accounts, kind of gave them a turbo boost out of the gate. And we saw this with Bernie Sanders. We saw this with Kirsten Gillibrand. We saw this with Elizabeth Warren and also Amy Klobuchar. So it, the money can actually go back, too. And, uh, and, and a lot of this is pretty uh, – pretty liquid. Uh, There are certain rules and regulations, and it gets tricky when you're, say, a governor. You you can't oftentimes go and transfer federal money back to your state campaign account. But federal level, different ballgame. And I I think we'll we'll be seeing uh, just about, you know, every trick of the trade, every uh, exotic (laughs) type of campaign finance transfer that is legally possible uh, at a time, I should note, when the Federal Election Commission, which is supposed to be calling balls and strikes uh, on all of this, is now seven and a half months since they have been able to enforce federal campaign finance laws because they simply don't have enough commissioners to actually go ahead and enforce the law, open investigations and close them, or fine committees that have broken the law if they've deemed that they have. It's a pretty unprecedented and really unbelievable situation that is persisting to this very day. Well, on that sunny note, we uh, uh, say thank you to Dave Leventhal, of course, the Center for Public Integrity. You can read all of his great stuff there. Uh, do you have anything big coming up? I got a, got a piece coming out tomorrow that I think, in fact, will be uh, of interest uh, along these lines to some folks, little Donald Trump, little Joe Biden. You can find it on publicintegrity.org uh, very, very soon. There we go. The pride and joy of Rosandra. It is Dave Leventhal. Thank you again so much. <laughs> Fantastic. Good to talk. And that's going to wrap it up for us today. I want to thank our Titanic $10 tier that makes this show possible. Middle-aged Mike, Chad, Dallas, Danger Taylor, your boy Craig, Zachy Chan, TroubleFilm.com, Nick, Utah, Jimmy Montana, D-Laser, Captain Bunzo, Kilowatt Podcast, Frozen Summers, Milk Leg Scoop, Emily, Wolf Glenn 99 Berkeley Steven, The Gen, Hamburgers, NH, Blumkin, Robert, Yoxi, Andrew, Brad, Daily Tech News Show, Darren, DLJ, Milius, Jonathan, Lindsay, Nick, Nomadic, Turan, Olin and Angelo, Richard Pierce, and Thor. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. You want to join their ranks, you head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. A reminder that five days a week, I got a newsletter for you. Monday through Friday. I don't care what the pandemic is doing. I got an email for you. Five stories a day, five days a week. Real quick read, real fun way to keep in touch with the news. If you want to mainline my sensibilities on days where I'm not talking directly into your ear, start your day with the free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. I'm also talking to you directly on twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. That is Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Wednesday, I take the time to do this show. That'll wrap it up. At Justin R. Young on Twitter. At Justin R. Young on Instagram. At Justin R. Young everywhere else. Snapchat, wherever else you can think, that's where I am. The youngamerican at gmail.com if you want to send me an email. Until next time, I want to remind you folks that some shows talk about politics. Still more talk about politics. And I saw one the other day that talked about politics, but this, this, friends, is the only show that talks about all 